Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 115, recorded on July 21st, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And I always like starting the show out with a new Linux release. And this week, we're taking a look at Endeavor OS, their first stable release, which, Joe, why don't you remind us where Endeavor OS comes from? It's, it's, been, a, it's been a couple of days. Well, how long ago was it that Antigos decided that they were packing it in? That must be about a month ago, right? I want to almost say two months as we record now. It's just right around there. Yeah. Well, around the time of the announcement that they were going to stop doing Antigos, a few people from the community decided that they wanted to continue it. It was decided that they wouldn't call it Antigos anymore, that they'd give it a new name. And so Endeavor OS was born. Now, I was very skeptical, very skeptical that it was actually going to happen but it has happened, and now we've got the first stable release of it. And having checked it out, I'm quite impressed. Yeah, me too. I'm delighted to say I'm very impressed. And I think you'll recall I was a little worried that it may have been derivative, that maybe it was time to just let Anagros go, and you know they had made a thing and let it pass. But Endeavor OS is truly its own thing. It really was not what I expected, starting from the installer being a little bit different and uh, the desktop environment that is chosen by default being completely different. And one of the more interesting implementations of Joe's favorite XFCE. Yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised because it used GNOME before, didn't it? Whereas now they've switched to XFCE by default and they've only got an offline installer at the moment. So it's XFCE or nothing. But then obviously you can install anything you want on top of that. But supposedly in the works is an online installer, which will allow you to pick from a bunch of other desktop environments. So if you want your GNOME or Plasma or whatever, then that will be coming. Yeah, but I would still encourage folks out there, even if they're not big uh, XFCE users, check it out because it may surprise you. At first pass, you might even question if it is indeed XFCE because they're using modern GTK themes and uh, some some modern design ideas that just make it look really sharp. It's a great implementation. And it's nice to see another great option for easy-to-use, simple-to-set-up Arch. And just like an Arch box, when you, when you boot this thing up for the first time, they've installed one of the graphical Arch news projects. So right up on my screen was a whole bunch of news about different package changes and all of that. And sure enough, I, I must have had nearly 80 packages to update after my install, maybe even more. But uh, it felt good to use Pac-Man again, and that was a nice implementation of XFCE. And I am so happy to say that this really does appear to be its own thing. I'm glad Endeavor OS is here, and I, I really can't wait to hear more when you guys dive in on Choose Linux coming out later this week. Yeah, we're going to give it a go, and spoiler, it's uh, going to be pretty positive. That'll be at ChooseLinux.show, and you can go to ChooseLinux.show slash subscribe if you're not already to get that episode this week. There's also, well, I won't spoil it, but there's a really great handy app pick in that that I've already installed because I got the exclusive sneak peek at it. <laughs> Um, something else I've used for a little while now, and uh, it's coming in a different form, is RetroArch. And this may be Steam's biggest emulation launch yet, but I'm putting that in quotes because there could be a big maybe in this story. Yeah, I was very surprised to hear that RetroArch was coming to Steam. Of course, this is the open source emulation platform, 
But what comes with an emulation platform are the actual emulators. And that is often a legal gray area, not to mention the actual ROMs that you run on it, which is also a bit of a legal gray area. RetroArch is so great. It it has a UI that harkens back to the very first iterations of the PlayStation 3 UI. It's really nice and clean. It fits well on a on a widescreen television. Now, if everything goes as planned, RetroArch will land in the Steam store on July 30th. Now, just a disclaimer, at first it will be the Windows-only version. The team does plan to launch the Linux and macOS versions, but they just want to absorb the support of the Windows version first. They're concerned about essentially getting tons of more users, and I think rightfully so. But you can go get it for your Linux box today. I've, I've used it before. It's great. And Joe's right. It makes it really simple to get, say, the Dolphin emulator or any emulator for basically any platform, including legal ones like DOSBox. And it also makes it pretty easy to get the ROMs or cores, as they call them. It's it's a great platform. I love it. I am surprised to see it coming to Steam. And I'm sure by default it won't ship with anything that's not legal. But much like the Cody argument often goes, it's only a few menu entries and maybe a community repo away and you can install anything you want. It's not Cody's fault, but the software does enable it. And we've seen that get things like Cody boxes in trouble before. So Valve may be watching this very carefully. The project is trying to couch it. In fact, they say, there really is nothing to do with emulators. I mean, sure, you can use it for that, but there's other things you could use RetroArch for. I'm not sure what those use cases are. (laughs) So, um, Although Valve doesn't really appear to have any specific rules about whether emulators are allowed or not. Um, Piracy obviously isn't, but emulators themselves aren't, I think, implicitly disallowed. Moral of the story is just go get RetroArch on your Linux box now. Well, yeah, it's a great piece of open source software and great that it's getting the exposure, the mainstream exposure of being in Steam. Yeah, for those Windows users out there, maybe you're playing around with the Windows subsystem for Linux. I know I would be. I've given it a crack. Recently, I did uh, install like the Insider builds of Windows and then like had to like do a whole bunch of more patches. And then I did get WSL2 installed. Um, yay me for a couple of days and then I stopped using Windows. But for those of you who prefer to use Windows, there's something that might help you run Ubuntu now. Yeah, there's a new meta package called Ubuntu-WSL, which is fairly limited at the moment, but I think the plan is to expand it to give you a bunch of tools to just make Ubuntu work better on the subsystem. Yeah, and it seems like the message here is more will be added to this meta package. Today, it's really a collection of utilities. Um, like, for example, uh, some that let you create shortcuts on the Windows desktop to launch right into that particular instance in Shell, um, start the Windows browser with uh, WSL View, which is can be very handy if you want to pass URLs around. And the plan is to add updates to the meta package as they add these features to make it integrate in with Ubuntu and WSL better. I get the sense here, Joe, is that Canonical is going to look at the Windows subsystem for Linux as just another platform that they target. They spin up images for a lot of cloud providers and um, other particular like hardware use cases. This is just yet another target platform now. Well, yeah, and it shows that they are very serious about this platform. It's not something that they're just leaving to rot. They're actively developing for it and treating it as an equal citizen with all those other use cases like the cloud providers. 
I, I just, if I was using Windows, Joe, if I was, if I was doing system administration or development, and my my boxes that I was developing for or managing were Ubuntu, I would be pretty thankful that Canonical is actually taking this seriously because this would be a real tool for me. Um, I have I have lived in environments where Windows was the OS I had to use for work, and I was a Linux user, and um, something like this would would sort of be like like at least a lifeline, <laughs> you know. So I. I I, I just channeling former Chris would really appreciate them actually putting the effort into this. And there's other distributions in there too, but it's it's nice to see this going to a whole other level now with the meta package. And then of course there's out there's other distros out there like um, Penguin, which is a a uh, sort of a meta Linux designed specifically for the subsystem. That's fascinating as well. There's some interesting things happening in Linux land on Windows. It's weird, Joe. It's weird. It is weird. But it's not as weird as Evil Gnome, no. which is <laughs> quite rare spyware or malware for the Linux desktop. Feels good. Feels real good. Like somebody noticed us, Joe. We got noticed. It's great. <laughs> and what's even better is it's done as a GNOME extension. At least it disguises itself as a GNOME extension. And it does all kinds of things like screen cap, listen to your audio. And it's got a great name. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, if you find it, you get to name it. And Intizer, I believe, is the company's name. They're the ones that came across this. And it looks like it hides itself fairly well. I think you could potentially be infected with this and not necessarily notice it. It's not like a crypto miner where suddenly you'd notice that, hang on, why is everything so sluggish? And then you'd have a look in top or whatever and see something blatantly pegging your CPU. Whereas this is going to just kind of sit there and do its thing and potentially not be noticed by people. Yeah. And... um it may be what we're seeing. This is some samples that VirusTotal have analyzed and other companies. It may be kind of um, an early stage version of this that is sort of going to be offered up as a package that people could uh, buy if they want to target Linux users. And it's modular too, and it uses cron for some of its nefarious scheduling. So it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty clever little thing. In fact, those modules, it's broken into five different modules, and this gives you an idea of what it does. Shooter Sound captures the audio from a user's microphone and then uploads it to the command and control server. Shooter Image captures the screenshots. Shooter File scans the file system, also watches for newly, fi- uh, newly created files, and then you know, uploads them. Re- really handy. A Shooter Ping, it, it's what receives new commands. And then Shooter Key, which isn't quite completed yet. Like I said, this is kind of early. It's This is like a test version, but shooter key is most likely an unfinished keylogger module that you turn on. And it's great. It's multi-process architected. It uh, looks like it's part of your uh, GNOME desktop experience. It installs itself to dot .cache, GNOME software, GNOME shell extensions, and attempt to look like a GNOME extension. And it runs GNOME shell extension.sh, which would look like a valid extension process to fire off those different modules. So is this a one-off then, or is this the start of a new era, do you think? Uh, I mean, it is a platform to build from, for sure. Uh, Evil GNOME is kind of rare, too, because it is so specifically targeting desktop Linux users. The economics of it, I'm not so sure of. Where it's going to go, I'm not so sure of. It seems to be backed by a group that is known for making Windows malware that is of similar functionality, and now this is just their Linux version. So I don't, I, I don't suspect it's going to be widespread. I think it's going to be a tool people can purchase for targeted attacks. But of course, the um, 
technical breakdown that we have linked in the show notes speculates that this might actually become more widespread as it more, as it matures and people grab different versions of it. So we'll see. Their speculation is a little more worst-case scenario. Mine is more like targeted attacks. But the full breakdown is linked in the show notes. It feels like everything's coming to Linux, eh? Skype, Spotify, Steam, malware. And even MacBook Pro keyboards, at least starting with Linux 5.3, although don't get too excited yet, there's a caveat. We may get initial support for MacBook keyboards and the trackpads. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and it didn't look good at all. That was when the SSDs were finally supported with the kernel module, and we didn't think it was going to be possible to support the keyboard and trackpad, at least not for a while. But uh, in typical Linux hacker fashion, they've made it happen. This is great news for people who want to use the Apple hardware with Linux. It's not going to be right away, but at least those machines are not going to be completely useless when Apple abandons them software-wise. Yeah. Well, it's also really good for people that want to do software support or data rescue uh, or forensics. So really, if you want all of the goodies to land, like Joe said, you kind of have to wait a little bit. Kernel 5.4 will have, in theory, the MVNE patch and the keyboard and trackpad patch. The keyboard and trackpad stuff is in kernel 5.3, but the uh, drive stuff doesn't land until 5.4, at least as things are planned now. Keep in mind that this has been an issue since the end of 2015, so it's kind of been a while now. What really happened is on the newer generation of MacBooks, they took those devices off the USB bus and made them SPI devices, which is really kind of nobody does that. And they also never documented the SPI protocol that their controller uses to communicate with the devices. So, thankfully, a developer had time to reverse engineer large portions of the protocol, not all of it yet, but has been able to write a basic Linux driver. There's still some things that need to be worked out, but what's known today is good enough for basic usage. And... Um, when you combine that with the MVNE patches that will land in 5.4, after four years, we're finally able to get control of the mouse and keyboard and write and read to the disk. It's all very early. So, I mean, it could be another four years before it's really production grade. Who knows? Or maybe it'll go much quicker now that the basics are. Maybe it's a couple of years. Maybe it's a year. But uh, it's not quite there yet. But it's so great to see, at least after four years of having nothing, this level of breakthrough. But it doesn't really matter if it does take another couple of years to become solid. What matters is that it happens eventually, because you would imagine that these MacBooks are going to get supported with uh, macOS for at least another few years. But then Apple just abandons stuff, don't they? I'm, like my old MacBook Pro that I've got with the amazing speakers, that's just been completely abandoned, but works perfectly with Linux now. I think it's about, what, five years? Is that what you said, five years? Is that what macOS is? That's my rough re recollection. It's something like that, I think, yeah. Yeah. I think what's less of a risk with uh, this SPI protocol and the and reverse engineering how the T2 RAID chip works, th them not supporting the Mac on Mac OS on that model of machine is, I think, going to happen. It's a, it's a known risk. Um, and, you know, five years is a good amount of time for us to try to work this out, apparently. However, I think the larger risk, that is a risk, but I think the larger risk is that Apple moves on to something else completely different, like a T3 chip or a, uh, you know, a T10 chip, and it's a 
once again in a totally new device or a totally new protocol, and then yet another generation of machines are unsupported. All of the rumors in the Mac Pro area right now suggest that there are new keyboards in the works, and that could be a moment where they change it all over again, or maybe not. Yeah, who knows, and eventually they'll probably switch over to ARM, at least for the Airs and um, whatever, you know, the lower-end stuff. But the hardware that's out there already that would otherwise just sit in a drawer on a shelf somewhere could actually be actively used. And that's one of the great things about Linux. Exactly. And I'll just point out that while I think, um, you know, there's definitely a work scenario and a use case for Apple hardware, um, one of the things that I prefer about Linux and the ecosystem around it is a a much higher level of predictability. You know, we can sit here and tell you this is going to land in kernel 5.3 and this is going to land in kernel 5.4, and then you know from that moment forward it's supported. Um, With this kind of stuff, you're you're guessing when it comes to Apple. It's that they like to be a black box. That's part of the allure, part of their magic. I get it. But when it comes to my work and my job, I just don't prefer it. I prefer predictability. I prefer the open, transparent nature of free software development. And that's why, for me, and I think maybe for a lot of people out there, Linux makes a better engineering workstation. At the end of the day, it's just a more predictable platform. I know that sounds crazy, but at this level, it is just simply a more predictable platform for me. Well, one of the great things about the Linux and open source community is that often when someone has had enough of a project, they'll step down responsibly, like we saw with Antigos, and then something great will be born out of it, like Endeavor OS. And this week, the maintainer for gpodder.net has said that he's had enough of that, but he's not just dropping it, he's actively looking for someone to replace him. Yeah, gpodder is one of those great applications that I've used forever. It's a GTK Linux desktop podcast client, in a nutshell. And you just give it an RSS feed, and it just dutifully downloads it from henceforth. And there is a website, web service component to it as well that needs to be kept up to date and secure, obviously. And there is some basic maintainership of the application to keep it current. The requirements appear to be some Python knowledge, basic understanding of web technologies, and an understanding of relational databases. However, that said, I think there is a lot of opportunity with gpotter. In fact, I think it could be one of the larger, more successful desktop Linux applications that could be monetized, just my opinion. Um, So I really hope this finds a new home and somebody who's really fired up and enthusiastic about keeping it going. And I have so much gratitude and respect to Stefan for keeping it alive as long as he has. It has been one of those tried-and-true desktop applications that has just continued to tick away and work for me year after year. And I hope somebody takes it on and it keeps going because he says if somebody doesn't, it's likely he'd have to shut the project down by the end of 2019. Yeah, I really hope someone does step up for this. But I think you're playing down the the web service aspect of this. It's a podcast directory, much like iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as they call it now. It's a place that you can search for new podcasts. And at the moment, if your podcast isn't on iTunes, then it's pretty much not in any applications. Whereas if you go for something that's a bit more freedom-respecting like Antennapod, you can specifically search gpodder.net. And I think we're in there, but then some of our other shows aren't. So we need to get on that, I think. Yeah, it just it, it just needs some love. Um, there's like, like Jono's show, Shot of Jack, which I don't think has had an episode since 2000. 
10 maybe yeah. is is in the trending or popular section. Um, the yeah. Linux action show Og Feed is also in there. It's like number 20 in there or something like that, which I don't think that's a very active feed anymore. So I think the web service needs some love too. And it's such a great idea. And we have so few open alternatives. And it is a nice, clean, simple UI. It just needs some data love and it could be there. Yeah, this is why I wanted to bring this up on the show, to shine a light on it and spread the word and hope that other people spread the word. And fingers crossed, we'll get someone who steps up and takes over. Be sure to check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this here show as we'll cover everything that develops and distill it all down into one easy-to-consume-per-week episode. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And I have to give a personal strong recommendation that you go over to error.show slash 70 and listen to Old and Insecure, episode 70 of the User Error Program. It is such a good show, and I absolutely loved every single minute of episode 70. Yeah, the best thing I ever did was asking Dan and Poppy to come and join me on that show. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.